You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Libby Casey, politics and accountability anchor at the Washington Post. There are many issues topping the agenda at next month's United Nations Climate Summit, but one of the most highly anticipated topics at COP26 is the role of business and finance. And joining me now to talk about this is Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. Mr. Carney, welcome to Washington Post Live. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Libby. So what opportunities does COP26 offer and, in your opinion, needs to happen at the summit in terms of businesses and the world of finance stepping up to help solve the climate crisis? Well, I I would put it uh, simply there's two objectives from a private finance perspective. Uh, The first is to have designed a system. Your intro talked about regulations and standards and elements, but basically the plumbing of the financial system has to be put in place so that uh, financial institutions, whether they're banks or pension funds or insurers or asset managers, have the information, the tools and the markets so they can take climate change into account. So in other words, it's a fundamental driver of every investment decision or lending decision. The second thing we need for COP26, put it bluntly, is money, a lot of it. Um, This is going to be an enormous uh, investment across the world that's required, somewhere between 100 to $150 trillion of external finance over the next three decades. And we need commitments from financial institutions that are of that order of magnitude. In order, not just to finance uh, the projects we need to get to where people want to go, but also to encourage countries around the world to step up with more ambition of of their own. Mm. And let's talk about that intersection between what businesses need to step up and do and what's it gonna be expected of countries. You know, internationally, the rich countries are falling behind in their commitments to step up and try to sort of spread the wealth internationally. So, So what do you expect to see there? Well, I think there's two things. First, um, so we're talking about the same types of commitments. In terms of uh, the commitments of the G7 countries uh, for reductions of emissions over the course of this decade, this decisive decade uh, out to 2030, actually through uh, the combination of President Biden's climate summit, uh, the G7 meeting that was held in June in uh, the UK, uh, the G7 has stepped up and uh, the commitments, at least in terms of objectives, are consistent with the path the world needs to go on. Now, of course, those objectives need to be backed up with actual policies and investments of uh, the public sector consistent with those objectives. But the first element, the recognition of the scale of the issue and taking responsibility is there. Um, And we can come back to the policies uh, as you wish. Um, But the second type of commitments that the um, uh, advanced economies of the G7 have to uh, meet is a financing commitment which was made 10 years ago uh, in Copenhagen uh, to support uh, the poorest countries in the world and help them with their adjustment. Uh, This is a $100 billion a year financing commitment. Uh, We haven't met it up until now. There's huge efforts underway. Again, two weeks ago, President Biden um, uh, committed to double the US uh, component of that commitment. Other countries are following with that. um, And it's a key objective for COP. But make no mistake, that is, 100 billion per annum. Uh, and we're, of course, talking orders of magnitude of three, four, five trillion per year that's needed in order to make the transition globally uh, trillion. So that those numbers, and this is our core point, 
aren't going to come from the public sector, aren't going to come from taxpayers. They're going to come uh, from the private sector, which is why we have to get the uh, financial system in the right place. So let's talk about sort of how those financial institutions step up. Last week, dozens of environmental groups took out an ad saying that while your work on getting these institutions to do more on climate is laudable, it has also allowed some companies still investing in fossil fuels to, to greenwash their image, you know, that is to make their climate work appear better than it is. Can you respond to those criticisms? Sure. Well, look, the first thing is to say the world has been on track for uh, north of three degrees uh, warming. So there's a series, of, I mean, our economies are in that position, um, uh, businesses are in that position, uh, the money that has been financing biz businesses have been in that position. What we have been doing over the course of the last 18 months is to turn that around and orient it from three degrees to one and a half degrees. Um, and uh, the, the core is to have financial institutions that recognize the scale of the issue um, and are, are committed to get on pathways to net zero. Um, and so they don't start from a position of net zero. If they started from a position of net zero, we wouldn't have a problem. We have this big issue. The best in finance, $90 trillion, $90 trillion already and counting, um, with some major additions in the last few days, um, have committed to get on those pathways to net zero. And that's not a pathway at some distant date. It's a five-year decarbonization plan. It's fair share of 50% reduction by 2030. It's annual and transparent reporting. So those who took out the ad, but more broadly, everybody um, will be able to see which institutions are part of the solution and which um, remain uh, part of the problem. I, I would underscore that the financial institutions, our banks, insurers, and others who have stepped up um, are very much part of the solution. They're the ones who are going to bring capital, investment, lending uh, to businesses that are going to decarbonize. Do you believe that companies, whether banks or other financial institutions, can legitimately claim to support efforts to address climate change if they're still financing fossil fuel-related projects such as coal or gas plants? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, coal is going to uh, is going to uh, move out very quickly. Uh, the advanced economies powering past coal, something led by the UK and Canada, uh, part of the COP process. Uh, I mean, and one of the core objectives of, of this COP is to uh, have a pathway to end coal by 2030 in advanced economies and by 2040 in emerging economies. And and so it's you know there's that trajectory. You there are countries where the, um, virtually all of the um, generation is from coal. Think South Africa, think a uh, substantial proportion in China, in Indonesia, other places. So we need to transition from that and have the finance that winds down those fossil fuel, which absolutely have to be wound down, there's no question, but with transition to wind those down as we ramp up uh, renewable and other clean sources of power. So this is not a switch that gets flipped overnight. Um, this is, um, but we need a system, which is what we have built, um, just have built a system that makes it transparent, who's doing the right thing, who's managing, helping to manage down those bad emissions uh, and get up uh, net zero generation. Let's talk more about how to sort of increase that transparency and accountability. You know, there are some skeptics who say that the ESG movement, you know, creating the environmental, social and governance priorities is sort of creating a mirage that's allowing financial leaders to charge more for investments that aren't actually making a difference in terms of climate change. So talk to us about how you're working to make yeah. companies' commitments well, and actions more transparent. 
Okay, so let's be absolutely clear what we're talking about. We we're addressing uh, the work that I'm working on and addressing as part of COP26 is to get the global economy towards net zero or get ultimately get us to net zero. Um, and that is a subset of a broader set of issues around uh, climate, nature, biodiversity, which itself is a very large subset of broader issues around environmental, social and governance. So I'm not pretending to solve all of those issues, but a relentless focus on transition to net zero because that's the only thing that's going to stabilize the climate. Um, so the systems being built up around that um, it requires fundamentally information at its core, um, which is why we have pushed uh, for mandatory so-called TCFD disclosure everywhere, not just for some companies who volunteer to do it, um, but in all economies, including the emerging and developing world. Um, we think we've cracked it, um, both with an agreement at the G7 in June, support from the G20 uh, in July, um, and also a development of an international standard through something called the IFRS, which will come out at COP. So there's that basic. But then what we need is net zero plans of our biggest uh, companies. Again, not just the longer term targets, but short term milestones and metrics so we can see who's moving in the right direction and who's falling behind. And very importantly, of our financial institutions, which is what we're doing with the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, apart from those commitments uh, towards net zero, but annual reporting of these financial institutions across all of their financing activities. So their whole balance sheets, not just their operations of their bank or insurer, uh, but their whole balance sheet of where that stands relative to this trend transition. So that's very clear, hard, those would be very clear, hard numbers against one metric. Last point, just to reemphasize, that does not mean that we're addressing the full range of issues around nature, around biodiversity, and certainly around um, uh, uh, social uh, social factors and governance factors. Uh, and it requires additional information, scrutiny, strategies for that. But we're focusing on this core element because without stabilizing the climate, uh, we can't begin to build, rebuild uh, uh, a nature positive uh, uh, world. As far as the work you're doing as a chair of the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, tell us more about sort of where the accountability will come in ensuring that companies follow through on the commitments. What, what's the system to check up and make sure those reports are indeed filed and that they are accurate? Well, I mean, one of the things is that we don't have that system today, and that's part of the reason why we put it in place. So as you said a moment ago, Libby, you know, there's lots of ESG uh, measures, there's lots of sort of gold stars or whatever, uh, and it's very hard to tell who's succeeding, who's not, and how to compare uh, apples with oranges and things uh, in, in those regards. So uh, that's why we set this up, having this annual accounting. There's something called PCAF standards, um, uh, which is the, the, the gold standard for uh, tracking emissions uh, of companies that you invest in or lend to. So everyone will use PCAF standards. Um, we will have, uh, as I say, these annual reports. We have an external, we have external technical advisory uh, panels which oversee this. Uh, it's rooted in uh, the United Nations process, both in something called the Race to Zero, which sets the pathways for industries to move towards net zero, as well as uh, something called UNEP-FI, which is the core uh, uh, secretariat, if you will, for the financial sector. So it has all those elements and accountability. In the end, um, though, what it is, is um, uh, you know, the, the main judges will be all the stakeholders of financial institutions. Um, 
are is a bank moving in that direction is it financing uh, the types of solutions that's needed and also very importantly and this is this is tough one to uh, uh, to get right but we've got to tackle it at this are they are those institutions responsibly and transparently supporting the wind down the winding down of activities that are high emitting um, that are hard to abate, that ultimately won't be part of the solution. Uh, because for a transition to work, we also have to do that in a way uh, that supports, uh, supports people in those industries um, and helps, uh, uh, helps the economy move forward. In order for investors to make smart decisions, consumers to make smart decisions, they have to be able to, to see what's actually happening uh, you know, yeah. behind that top sheet. Uh, that's right, without question. So, uh, and one of the core things for investors is is to make judgments about who's doing well, who isn't, um, relative to a pathway. So let me let me let me be clear about that. Uh, if you look at uh, the steel sector, um, it's it's one of the biggest contributors to climate change. About eight percent of uh, man-made or human-generated uh, uh, emissions. Um, there is a path, a technical path, to reduce those emissions with existing technologies, uh, so-called science-based uh, pathways. There's a few of those. And we now have a system where one can look at a specific steel company, where is it relative to that pathway, and then ask the question, well, the investments that they're making, the strategy that that steel company is pursuing, whether it's in Canada, the US, Europe, uh, China, is that going to get it onto the pathway? And of course, I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt about this. If you're an investor uh, in that sector, it's one of the determinants you're going to use to, to figure out where is their value being created uh, in that sector, because uh, it's quite possible that a company has those strategies, is going to start to decarbonize aggressively, um, but the market hasn't fully priced that in. That happens all the time. And if I can generalize this now, this is one thing that's just beginning to happen in financial markets, which is uh, looking at climate change and the climate competitiveness of a company as one of the determinants of its value. And those who are moving in the right direction are, are becoming rewarded and, and the laggards are, 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 being, uh, are being punished. That's part of what we've been trying to accomplish in getting the information out there so the market can make those determinations. So where is the boundary between uh, this sort of oversight and information sharing and self-regulation? Where do governments need to step in? Uh, because, yes, investors can make smart decisions yeah. in terms of saving the climate, but they also may just make decisions based on the bottom line. Uh, and so where is well, the accountability yeah. there? Well, there's a couple of things. Let, let's let's go to the basics of what governments need to do. One is is climate policy. So it's great. We talked at the outset, Libya, that um, G7 nations and others are beginning to step up with the types of commitments in order to uh, be on a path to net zero. Let's take the United States, 50% down by 2030 on emissions. Well, what are the underlying policies that are consistent with those reductions? What's happening in the auto sector? What support is there for emerging sectors such as hydrogen, carbon capture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Canada, where I'm talking to you from, there is a legislative price on carbon out till 2030. So these are some of the things that governments need to do uh, in order to help the adjustment. The second thing more specifically to the financial sector is they need to get the plumbing right. We need to, the private sector can take it a certain way on the voluntary basis, 
but then it needs to be made consistent. Um, and that's uh, the classic example here right now is climate reporting. Um, I think within a few years, I, I've, I've mentioned a few times net zero plans of companies, of financial institutions. Um, there's a bit of experimentation going on with that right now, but within a few years, I think that will have to be formalized and, and, and it's a role for um, authorities, whether it's uh, financial regulators uh, or securities regulators in order to do that. Uh, the third thing that governments need to do is to help create new markets and, and make sure the infrastructure is there for markets. Um, the most important of which, um, or one of the most important, I should say, is uh, for so-called nature-based solutions, uh, the carbon offset market. You hear a lot about that market, um, but it's very small. It's only about a billion dollars a year. It's very fragmented. It's not fully professional professional in many respects. Uh, and there's a wholesale effort to rebuild or start again with that market. Um, governments will have to play a role ultimately in ensuring that that market is the, has the integrity that it, that it needs in order to uh, scale up rapidly. We have an audience question for you, Mr. Carney. So we've been talking about so much of the big picture. This is a question coming from a, a personal investor who, who's just asking, how can a potential investor tell whether a company is genuinely implementing sustainable practices yeah. and not just window dressing? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think if the first is, I would say to uh, the, the Mr. Mr. or Ms. Kimmelman uh, who asked the question, um, that I would go to the annual report and see what they say in the annual report. And the reason I say that is if they're genuinely implementing these practices, uh, they're part of the company's core strategy. They'll appear in the annual report, not in a separate sustainability report, which is off here. Um, the second thing is, um, what are the metrics that that company uses to measure how sustainable they are? So uh, again, with with uh, greenhouse gases, they should know not just the greenhouse gases that they use in their day-to-day -day activities, but that which would they use from the power they uh, use to uh, uh, build or, or, or to provide their services, and also the emissions in their supply chain and by their customers. So the so-called scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. So um, first, is it in the annual? Secondly, how well do they account for it in terms of clear metrics? And then finally, and crucially, what's their strategy to get them down? And of course, you need a few years eventually to have a track record to see whether they're successful uh, in reducing emissions. Um, are they putting their money where their mouth is? And, uh, and are those uh, strategies effective? Those, were the, those would be the three things that I would do. Um, you know, the shorthand for a financial institution is, are they part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero? That's the shorthand because that uh, there's a lot of rigor in order to get into these alliances um, and then transparency, which comes for that. But I think ultimately the spirit of the question is looking at specific companies and how can you tell? Well, as you've talked about, it will take trillions with a T trillions of dollars in investments to achieve yeah. that zero emissions future. So talk to us about some of the latest data that indicates that the investments do yield returns. Why would companies invest so much to do this work? Well, I think there's a there are a couple of reasons. One is the shift in government policy um, is making it more expensive to emit um, and and uh, higher return to reduce those emissions. 
Um, secondly, uh, it's um, it, there's an alignment with, uh, I'll, I'll use the term stakeholders, but let me make it tangible. There's alignment with employees, there's alignment with suppliers, um, and, and in many cases with customers who are looking for uh, companies that um, are sustainable. Uh, and I think the third thing, and this is, it slightly goes to the investor question, uh, which is, um, you know, this is a big, there, there are a couple big strategic issues in, uh, over the course of this uh, next decade. Uh, all aspects around digitization uh, is one, and the shift towards a more sustainable economy is another. And so if a company is not focused on it, if it isn't integral to their strategy, if it's not an issue for the CEO, CFO, uh, then you've got to ask yourself, well, what else isn't being managed properly uh, in that company? So it is an indicator, a proxy, if you will, uh, for good and effective uh, strategic management and value creation as a consequence. Let's talk about another place where both businesses and consumers are, are thinking about their money, and that's this emerging energy crisis we're seeing. You know, advocates for renewable energy yep. are saying that this current crisis that we're moving into right now shows the need to shift away from coal and oil as we see uh, those commodities spike. There are also a lot of concerns, of course, Mr. Carney, that energy shortages and high prices will hurt this economic recovery that many countries are trying to do in this you know, sort of post-pandemic moment. So given the position you're in at the intersection of business and, and climate change, what do you see should be done at this moment to, to get through to a stronger economy? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is we have a series of supply chain problems with the restart of the global economy. As you know, it, uh, semiconductors affecting a, value, a variety of things. We've seen it in uh, commodities for uh, the building sector as well. Uh, we're seeing it in energy markets, and uh, and so there's a there's a common cause for much of this. Second point, though, is it underscores the need for an integrated uh, energy transition strategy. Um, and so part of that integrated strategy is um, uh, a transition which has lower and lower carbon uh, fossil fuels at their heart, uh, but still some fossil fuels at their heart. And, and, and uh, it, it is a reality of where we're starting from and where we need to get to. So it does need to be integrated, um, but only to a point, in other words, only to an objective, the objective being to decarbonize. Um, and so it has to be transparent if there are uh, lending or investment uh, in fossil fuels um, that, um, uh, that when's the end state, when's the, the terminal uh, point, at the, in, in other words, as it goes down. You know, big picture, there's two things we know. One is we have far too many fossil fuels uh, than we can possibly burn and meet our climate objectives, more than twice as much that we already know about in the ground that we can possibly burn and meet our climate objectives. That's on a global basis. Um, and the second thing we know is that renewable energy um, on the margin is in most economies, uh, the most efficient form of energy, and that lead is widening. Uh, and that lead, of course, continues to widen with uh, uh, with the current prices of energy. So um, it's about transition. It's about an integrated strategy. Uh, and uh, it underscores that we're going to need for a period of time all forms of energy, but certainly uh, the fossil fuel component has to decline. And finally, what does success look like in terms of finance uh, at the UN summit? Um, and, and what what does failure yeah. look like? 
Well, uh, let's let me talk about success. We'll leave it on the high level. Well, we need that hundred billion from uh, governments. Secondly, we need commitments from the private financial sector towards net zero that equal the scale uh, uh, of uh, the financing need of the world for the next uh, three decades. So something on the order of 100 trillion uh, dollars. Um, and thirdly, we very importantly, we need um, to have in place uh, an approach to get that money, which might end up being the right amount of money, the order of magnitude, but also in a way that's going to flow to where it's needed the most, which is the emerging and developing world, in a way that's commercial uh, and effective. Uh, and uh, we need all three of those elements for Glasgow. I could bore you, and I won't. Um, I'll stop here. Maybe I already have, but I, I could bore you about um, 24 other things we need in the plumbing of the financial sector, but just maybe just rest assured that uh, those are going to be delivered. We'll be watching. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Carney. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much, Libby. A pleasure. I'll be back in just a few moments with our next guest. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Businesses can facilitate and accelerate change when it comes to meeting environmental, social, and governance goals to the benefit of their communities, but also to their employees, their investors, and even their customers. How do they move forward to create positive change for groups beyond their shareholders? I'm Jean Meserve. Here with me to discuss is Paul Knopf. Paul is U.S. Chair and Chief Executive Officer of KPMG U.S. Great to have you with us. So let me ask you first, um, the ESG landscape has changed significantly over the last few years. How are CEOs viewing that? Gene, it's a pleasure to be with you. And there's a lot of momentum in the direction of ESG. That, that is a certainty, you know, whether it's thinking about the climate or the social element of ESG. And you know, we see more than 60% of CEOs in our most recent KPMG CEO outlook survey saying they're trying to lead with purpose to deliver long-term sustainable value for all stakeholders. We also see that two to one CEOs are saying that ESG improves financial performance, which is critically important. And we're seeing that CEOs want to lock in the gains they've had on sustainability during the pandemic as part of their mission on ESG. But really interesting to say too, that CEOs are thinking about the how, and trying to envision the how with respect to ESG. You know, how do you operationalize? How do you transform those business models? And I think it's the reason we're seeing a lot of interest in our own KPMG ESG solution, KPMG Impact today. Stakeholder capitalism is the in vogue phrase. And I'm wondering which stakeholders are standing out and how are corporations meeting their demands? Well, Gene, certainly all stakeholders are relevant. We see institutional investors in our CEO survey is really standing out the tip of the spear, but also the regulatory environment is very focused on climate. It's very focused on the human capital element of ESG. And we expect more uh, requirements potentially coming out of the SEC when it comes to climate and human capital, more disclosure requirements, more transparency. And we certainly are seeing that in the EU. I think it's really important, though, to point out that our employees are a huge stakeholder when it comes to ESG. 
employees want to work for organizations that have a purpose and that purpose needs to be tied to the culture and to sustainability in the future. And there's no doubt that our customers are critically important when we think about ESG. They're looking at their suppliers and they're looking for accountability, transparency, and they're looking for progress when it comes to all elements of ESG. You mentioned climate. The UN Climate Change Conference is coming up shortly. How are corporations going to respond to demands for decarbonization and what is their role going to be vis-a-vis -vis government? Well, Gene, I already mentioned that one finding from our survey that CEOs, more than 75% are looking to lock in the gains on sustainability, reduced emissions that we've had from the pandemic or during the pandemic. But they're also looking to mitigate financial risk. They're looking to improve their operating models. They're looking in some cases to really transform their own business models to lock in those gains and to improve operations. You know, we, we see them trying to operationalize sustainable behavior, sustainable action to ensure that they are more efficient. They do realize those better financial performance metrics. And, you know, stepping back too, we, we've talked to many CEOs and I engage with CEOs where we talk a lot about the same journey that we're on with respect to digital transformation, we're going to be on with respect to ESG and they are, they are very linked. The, the digitization of business, digitalization of business is leading to progress on several fronts with ESG. And we're seeing real strong progress in that area. I, I would say too, at KPMG, we're on our own journey. And it's very important to note that as part of our journey, we're committed to being a net zero organization by 2030. Also, uh, achieving a 50% reduction in direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions, and also looking at setting the internal price of carbon. We've done that recently, and it's really leading to solid business decisions and operationalizing some of those business decisions that I referred to earlier. So we're seeing real progress at our own organization when it comes to ESG. Is KPMG viewing ESG as a market opportunity? There is no doubt that ESG is a huge market opportunity. We believe ESG has the power to really transform business. Again, you know, companies are looking at ways to transform their business models to be more environmentally friendly, to connect more with their employees, to have better governance models moving forward into the future. And they're all they're proactively addressing these ESG factors, you know, not just because of the long-term societal impacts of ESG gene but also because they're really trying to realize the benefits real time, realize the benefits today through better engagement on climate, through better engagement with our own employees, and certainly through engagement with our customers and our clients as we try to ensure that ESG is the watermark for everything. We kind of look at it at KPMG as the watermark through which everything runs in our organization. You know, we tap into people to ensure that they are excited about the journey that we're on, but they're also very engaged in wanting to work with our clients to help our clients improve on their own ESG journey. And very importantly, Gene, too, last week we announced a $1.5 billion investment over the next three years for KPMG globally to harness the data around ESG, to transform technologies to fit to the ESG solutions that we need, and also to invest in our people, invest in training, and expand our workforce when it comes to ESG capabilities in the future. So we really think that ESG is accelerating a lot of change and we're certainly on that journey at KPMG and we're certainly with KPMG Impact, the solution that we have that's, that's diverse, it's uh, multi 
multidisciplinarian, it's global. We're seeing a lot of interest in what we can deliver to the market with KPMG Impact. Paul Kanak, U.S. Chair and Chief Executive Officer of KPMG U.S., thanks so much for joining us. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Libby Casey, politics and accountability anchor at The Washington Post. My next guest joins us to talk about sustainable investing. I'm pleased to introduce Ann Simpson from the California Public Employees Retirement System, or CalPERS, one of the largest pension funds in the world. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Yes, good morning. Lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. So let's talk about what CalPERS has to do. You know, you have this fiduciary responsibility to pay pensions and to prepare long term so you can continue to pay those pensions of people decades from now. So where does that mission overlap with encouraging companies to be environmentally responsible? Well, thank you for that question. Corporate prosperity is what we rely upon so that we can harvest the returns and pay pensions. You know, for every dollar that we pay out in pensions, over 50 cents comes from investment returns. So we are inextricably locked in, not just with society, but with business in facing these sustainability challenges. Now, when you rightly ask, where does the environment fit into this? Just take the example of climate change or think about other planetary boundaries around biodiversity or water management. These environmental issues matter to financial markets because they affect risk, but they also present huge opportunity, particularly as we're attempting to move towards net zero and the financial markets are full force driving companies in that direction. How do you think about climate change posing that risk to your investments? You know, I'd like to share with you a new Washington Post headline. Let me read this here. Already 18 weather disasters costing at least $1 billion each have hit the U.S. this year. And Ms. Simpson, it goes on to say that these disasters are coming in quicker succession, so the nation can't recover, doesn't have time. How do you factor that into investing? Uh, with great care. And here's why. You know, the two dimensions really on climate risk. One is thought of, as you mentioned, physical risk, you know, where stuff is, zip code risk, vulnerability to extreme weather events, be that, you know, wildfires. We're here in California where we've had horrific wildfires. The great irony being, of course, our members are the firefighters who are there on the front line tackling the blaze. But the big question they're asking us is, well, if the emissions are causing the temperature rise, which is leading to this uh, vulnerability to wildfire, which is then posing risk to life, limb, and of course to investments, then we need to do something about bringing the emissions down. So that's the physical risk. But there's another risk that we have to pay attention to in the portfolio, and that's transition risk. This is when a company has got to make huge changes to its uh, to its capex that's its you know its own internal investment uh, of, of shareholder funds its strategy in getting from where we are now which is on track for a over three degrees warming world to the net zero goal of 2050 which is what we need so and we're not talking about um easy easy industries for this transition you know we're not we're looking at oil gas utilities transport cement, steel making, getting these industries onto that low carbon track is incredibly demanding. So the transition risk we face is that companies fail. 
either because they don't have the imagination, they don't have the right people on the board, they don't have the incentives or the, the information in the market to you know, make good decisions. And right now uh, we're, we're, we're in a sort of uh, something somewhat better than snake oil, but not much in terms of corporate reporting and data gathering on this. So there's a lot to do at COP26 to actually give the market the information and also to get the incentives aligned to help with this transition. Tell us more about what you'd like to see come out of COP26 in terms of that element of risk reporting, uh, making it more standardized, making it mandatory. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This is an essential issue for investors who, you know, we went to Paris in 2015 to say, hey, uh, First of all, the markets are being distorted in two ways. Um, markets can be forceful and powerful, but not if they are ill-informed. At the moment, we simply don't have the data in a standardized, consistent, verified format integrated into the financials, which is what we need to make good investment decisions. We're, we're sort of rather groping in the dark, you know, and <coughs> you think about you go shopping to buy uh, a can of beans, you expect to be able to see what's in the tin. That's the purpose of the label. Well, when we're buying investments, we simply don't have that kind of uh, information that's going to help us understand risks that are ahead of us. So that's number one for COP26. We've got to have global standards of climate risk reporting so that the financial markets can play their part and also so that regulators can do what they need to do. The second thing is this question of the market being distorted by uh, misaligned incentives. Think about hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Now, there was a time in life when that probably seemed like a good idea for fostering energy independence and so forth for, for particular markets and you know, countries within those markets. Now we're at a point where this is actually a drag, it's holding us up on the transition to net zero, so they have to go. Secondly, we must have a price on carbon. Right now, carbon is the, uh, and, uh, and its friends, carbon and friends and the uh, emissions are one of the culprits in global warming. We need to bring it down and therefore we need to put a price on it because markets work best when the incentives are aligned and without carbon pricing we simply don't have that so that's our biggest to-do list coming out of cop 26 um and with with those in place the financial markets will really be able to scale up finance far more effectively both to finance into the opportunity for the new uh, for the new businesses, but also in bringing down emissions, which is vitally important. So CalPERS is part of a group of pension funds and private equity firms that recently announced agreement on a standard reporting, a standardized way of reporting on uh, these ESG uh, performance metrics. So we're talking about environmental, social and governance records. How significant is that development? Where's sort of the uh, incentive versus enforcement on that one? Well, we, we, we've got a couple of very big things going on. In public markets, we have Climate Action 100 Plus, and this is an alliance of now an eye-poppingly large number of assets under management. We have a $55 trillion alliance in the financial markets focusing on the companies that are the largest sources of emissions. Now, globally, <clears throat> we now have 111 
of these largest uh, greenhouse gas emitters committing to net zero. And you might think, OK, pretty good. What does that mean? Well, Bloomberg New Energy Finance calculated that's equivalent to 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions or about the annual emissions of China. So this shows that the financial markets with data, with engagement, with their voting and ability to hold boards accountable can get these net zero commitments. And yesterday, Chevron joined the club. So we're making fantastic progress in public markets. Now, <clears throat> the problem then is how are we going to track these issues and make sure we are managing these risks in private markets? And that's a tricky one for regulators because for example, in the United States, the regulations don't easily extend into private markets. That's something Gary Gensler and friends are thinking about trying to work out at the moment. We've got a systemic risk uh, and we're not just thinking about climate change, we're thinking about human capital management issues as well. You know, diversity, um, job creation, a whole range of important matters that we need to start collecting data on. So the initiative uh, that CalPERS has developed is called the ESG Data Convergence Project. And we've set this up with a number of our large private equity partners. And the idea is really to bring into the private markets the understanding of risk and return on sustainability that we are managing to make progress on in public markets because there's no point in you know playing whack-a-mole with this you know you have uh, companies decide to dispose of assets they are the high emitting assets and go into private markets and then it really is a case of uh, out of sight it's easy to be out of mind so the idea of this uh, project that we've launched in uh, private markets is really to give us a view of these risks and opportunities on sustainable investment right across the total portfolio. Let's talk more about that question of sort of what happens when uh, interested parties divest, right? Uh, so here's an example. You you argued this fall after Harvard University cleansed its multi-billion dollar investment fund of holdings in fossil fuel companies that when these big investors divest of their holdings, they lose the base of ownership. And I've heard you, Ms. Simpson, uh, talk along those lines about a company actually celebrating when CalPERS divested because it meant they could bring in new shareholders who might just care less about the climate or social responsibility. So explain your philosophy of, of knowing when to hang on to an investment to try to make change uh, as someone with a stake um, versus just getting out of it and selling the interest in a company that isn't making the transition fast enough as a statement of principle. Uh, well, it's a statement of financial fact. Um, is this when we sell our shares, if we divest, as it gets called, if we sell our shares, guess what? They don't vanish. Uh, what happens is we sell them for money to another investor who then owns the asset that we've disposed of. Now, that's a normal part of the market. That's what markets are there to do, to help people buy and sell things. It's almost the definition of a market. Uh, but when we're looking at a systemic risk like climate change and we want to bring global emissions down, me selling CalPERS assets uh, to you who might have a different investment strategy and want those assets does absolutely nothing to the emissions. So um, for CalPERS, in managing a risk like climate change, we can't use divestment as a solution. Now, there are certain assets that we don't see uh, capable of 
being part of the transition to low carbon. And um, an example there is uh, thermal coal. Companies rely on, on more than 50% of their revenues. CalPERS and CalSTRS, our sister fund in California, uh, we disposed of coal some years ago following uh, a California state mandate on that arena. However, it didn't discharge us of our fiduciary responsibility to work out whether this was the right investment decision. So for oil and gas, we have to realize that 80% of the world's industry, you know, industrial activity is dependent on fossil fuels. So us selling our shares to another investor in a highly liquid market is, you know, might lay off a risk for us in terms of, say, stranded assets, but it doesn't protect our members' assets from the risks of climate change itself. The only way that we can uh, tackle that is to get to the source of the problem, which is these emissions. If we've got just around 100 plus companies responsible for 85% of the emissions in our portfolio in public markets, then we need to get busy with other investors who've also got a long-term approach to actually bring those emissions down. Now, if we sell our shares, we lose our seat at the table. And, and I, I, I give you an example here with Exxon, where um, we worked very hard with, with Calsters, with other big pension funds, New York City, New York State, to bring to support engine one in bringing new directors to the board and candidate number three nearly missed by a whisker and uh and and i was sort of looking back at the divestments that have taken place in recent years at exxon and saying well if you hung on you'd have been there to cast your vote and really secure new expertise, new energy industry expertise, new understanding of renewables onto the board of Exxon, which ultimately is what's going to make the change. We need Exxon to make the net zero commitment and to put the strategy and the capex behind that so that the company can prosper over the long term. It needs to change course. And for that, we need a new board. For that, we need the votes to get climate competent boards of directors at these big companies where the transition is a critical part of their financial future. Can you talk about the, the push-pull that takes place before that, uh, that transformation might come? Because essentially CalPERS is making money off of in investments when companies may not yet be where you'd like them to be on climate solutions. So how do you have that conversation um, with people who, uh, who have uh, you know, CalPERS as their pension plan who say, look, I, I, have, I have moral objections to this. I have real concerns about this. You, know, you were talking earlier about some of those first responders who are fighting the, those very fires that climate change is, is fanning the flames of. Yeah, those firefighters, those first responders, they're CalPERS members. So the issue, when I think about doing investment like a firefighter, <clears throat> the first advice you get from the fire service is protection. You need readiness, you need protection, you need to put resilience in place. Uh, and if you think about that from a portfolio, from an investment point of view, it means you look at the risks that your investments are exposed to and think about how can you either mitigate or manage those risks <clears throat> and make sure that you're being rewarded for taking them. That really is just the day job of an investor. It's finding uh, rewards for risk taking. There are various ways of thinking about 
risk premia on what they bring. But if we're running risks that aren't being recognised, measured, understood, and then mitigated, we're in serious trouble with our fiduciary duty. Uh, you know, we we have to be able to sustainably pay pensions for two million people over the very long term and generate cash in the short term. We have to pay out about $25 billion a year in cash to current pensions and grow the fund at 6.8% over the very long term. So this is not an easy job at all, not for the faint hearted. But in the midst of that, our understanding of risk and the opportunity is going to be at the heart of it all. So on climate change, um, this question of do, do you walk away from the problem or do you tackle it at source? That's the dilemma. That's the question. So for CalPERS with that size and our scale, our view is that in partnership with other investors, in order to make our portfolio resilient, we need to be part of driving the transition in the real economy, not just, you know, greenwashing our own portfolio. You know, that has been a concern that's been out there in the market is are investors just doing things to make themselves look marvellous or are they really getting down and dirty and rolling their sleeves up and working with companies to make sure that this transition in place, which means the right board of directors, the right strategy, the right financial reporting and the right plans to make sure that the impact on the workforce and the community has been taken into account as well. You know, the just mm. transition as it's known. As you make decisions about investments, one of the questions about ESG investing is how the returns compare to more conventional investments, because we've talked about you have to pay out those pensions and you have to keep generating growth for the future. So how do they compare? Well, after the last but one financial crisis, CalPERS really went back to the drawing board thinking about this question of returns because it was it was just before I um, uh, I came to CalPERS. But the fund had been almost brought to its knees financially by the great financial crisis. You know, I rem CalPERS went into that financial crisis 101% funded. That means we had a bit more by way of assets than we owed in liabilities, which is the place you want to be. Because that's safety and soundness for the members. Financial crisis took that down to around 65% funded. So this question of the financial returns is absolutely fundamental to being a pension fund. It's why pension funds exist, is to allow people to save for the future, for us as fiduciaries to invest that money and make sure it grows over time. And then, as I said, every dollar we pay out in pensions, over 50 cents comes from investment returns. So it's of critical importance. So our members are looking for that safety and soundness in their pensions. now. Our job on the investment front <clears throat> is to allocate capital, understanding uh, the risks and the opportunities. And that's where we began to put together a new framework, which is to say, aha, we, we are coming to appreciate that financial capital on its own is not the only thing we need to track, understand, you know, think about. We need to understand that human capital is vital to value creation and to risk. And the pandemic has demonstrated that with brutal clarity for everyone. The social protests for racial justice in the United States and elsewhere also brought this home in an absolutely compelling way. Then we have physical capital. 
think about companies' access to water, impact on biodiversity, the impact of global warming. So essentially, we now at CalPERS don't put ESG over here in a little bucket. And it's a problem for an investor because there's no letter for F for finance. It's just sort of, here's ESG, all marvellous. Now, how do we bring this over to our day job of finance? Well, the way we've approached this is to say, no, 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 no. These things are interlinked. And in order to produce the financial returns, you have to take account of human capital and physical capital management. And that is really the basis for the strategy that we have, which goes right across the portfolio. So we look at, we've essentially got three things we can do. We can be advocates with policymakers and regulators. That's why um, we'll be at COP26, arguing the case for carbon pricing, mandatory risk reporting, things that are going to help the markets work better. Secondly, we've got the power as the owners and the allocators of capital to engage. That's the second piece, that's Climate Action 100 Plus. We've now got 55 trillion focusing on the world's systemically important carbon emitters and getting big results. Um, and then the third part is integration. That's where we take our understanding of these three forms of capital into our investment decision making. When we produced our first TCFD, <clears throat> we had Mark Carney on earlier, um, Mr. TS TCFD himself, our TCFD report um, assesses that about 20% of our portfolio globally in all asset classes is at risk from climate change. But the good news is in our private assets, we have um, around $15 billion, close to 20% of all private market assets are in what you might call climate solutions, you know, renewables, water storage, energy efficient buildings, where we also have uh, a responsible contractor policy. So, for example, th then we see in that strategy for our real assets portfolio, this has been very good for returns because we're finding that environmentally uh, efficient buildings, both on energy and water and waste, attract tenants who are going to appreciate um, being in that kind of facility and also our responsible contract policy. So I think you've got um, people doing the maintenance, the service, the construction who are being paid a fair wage and have the right to union representation if that's the way the workforce wants to go. Um, and we have a reporting framework for all of this so that we can keep track of what's going on. So these aren't just you know, warm words that, that that we pull out of nowhere to sound good. It's tough work and we know we've got uh, uh, so much more to do. But the progress that we can make is by understanding it's not a matter of it's ESG or it's finance. It's actually these forms of capital that we need to manage to create the returns. So it's 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 a far more holistic. Hence, far more your, hence your ESGF. Well, sorry, I, yeah, I, hence your ESG. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. How many more letters of the alphabet do we need? So it's really why we like and, and we use the term sustainable investment because it's a, the day job of a pension fund. You know, your ability to continue for the future without undermining the assets that are going to make that possible is, is essentially uh, a, a, a reasonable definition of, uh, of sustainability. And I think somewhat in the spirit of the Brundtland report, where 
that idea was really first put into the public domain in a very clear way. Well, we have to leave it there, but it's a perfect place to end. Anne Simpson with CalPERS, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.